0: So now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Oh, Now is the judgment of this world. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from
1: God. So in looking at the text, have you, have you ever known someone to die before their time? This usually is said, it's usually said about someone who died young, and it leaves us with this feeling of they had more to do. Maybe people like Kurt Cobain of of Nirvana or actress Brittany Murphy or or Amy Winehouse come to mind. Or maybe Jimi Hendrix. Uh, He was an American rock star who's widely regarded as one of the most influential guitarists in the history, um, in US history, and one of the most celebrated musicians of the 20th century. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame describes him as the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music. But did you know his, own, his career only lasted four years and he died when he was 27 years old? Or maybe you think of a, a Tupac Shakur or Notorious B.I.G. or, or Aaliyah. Some, some may argue that the cultural icons today of Jay-Z and Beyonce wouldn't be as big as they are if, if some of those people had still been around. Uh, or, or maybe Princess Diana or Martin Luther King Jr. or John F. Kennedy. Uh, the truth is that we could all rattle off a bunch of people Who didn't live long enough to show the world all that they could be. When I think of people who left things uh, undone, uh, as if you may, one person that comes to mind for me is arguably the greatest musician, the greatest entertainer to ever live. The king of pop himself, Michael Jackson. (laughs) Seriously, have you ever seen a Michael Jackson concert? I've never been live, but I've seen them on YouTube and the people just kind of go crazy uh, when he came out on the stage. It's kind of insane. But in, 2009, uh, in 2009, Michael Jackson had been rehearsing for the concert of his lifetime that would be held in London. If everything had gone to plan, the concert would have been attended by several million fans, generated over one billion dollars for the local uh, economy, and earned Michael Jackson over 230 million dollars uh, himself. Uh, this concert was set to break world records for fastest ticket sales, uh, the shows, uh, the most shows performed by an artist at a single venue and the largest audience ever to see an artist in one city. This concert was named, This Is It, because Jackson planned it to be his final hour of glory on stage before he would call it quits. In March of that year at a press conference, Jackson told reporters, this will be my final show. And when I say this is it, it really means this is it. Well, I think you all know what happened. He never made it to his concert. He died June 25th, 2009, just 18 days before his show was to begin. Michael Jackson, along with all the others, will go down in history as one whose death had kept him from his final hour of glory. But there is one who has gone down in history as one whose death was his finest hour of glory. And this glory has remained untouched for over 20 centuries, a glory that continues to impact millions in the world today. The one whose death was his finest hours of glory is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we will see as we go through the text in John today. As we continue from last week, uh, Jesus is still addressing the crowds um, that met him as he entered Jerusalem. And, and Nick did a great job of, of telling us about the meaning, the sim- symbolic, the, the symbolism of the branches, the palm branches, and, and how it was uh, meant for, to celebrate the victory of a, of a, of a coming king. Um, and the crowds there crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, calling him uh, the king of Israel. And Jesus, he was talking, he was addressing them, and he told them that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And... and In the book of John, we've noticed that uh, every time Jesus spoke of the hour, he spoke of, that was in reference to the cross, right? So a lot of times throughout the book of John, Jesus would uh, perform a miracle uh, when he turned the water into wine and he would say, you know, he'd make a comment or a statement to say, my hour has not come. And we saw that repeatedly throughout John until this moment where Jesus says, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. And at this point, he had made the great promise that his death when he compared it to the wheat, will produce much fruit. Now, I don't know if the crowd understood what Jesus was saying at that moment. I don't know if they knew he was speaking of his own death. But as we continue with the text this week, we see that John makes it very clear. John 12, 27 and 28 says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name and a voice came from heaven i have glorified it and i will glorify it again speaking of his death to come the text begins with now is my soul troubled as much as jesus was the royal son of man he was also flesh 100% god 100% man you know john told us at the beginning that and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that means john was I mean, jesus was fully capable of experiencing the full range of human emotions that we experience he experienced joy and, and happiness. He experienced pain. He experienced sadness. Everything that we have experienced, he has also experienced fear uh, and suffering. It might seem surprising to see that Jesus, the creator of the universe, would approach his death with such fear. I mean, how many heroes do you know uh, come off as afraid? You know, they face things that with, with fear. After all, other men have approached their death calmly. You know, history records that many Christians and non-Christians alike uh, as facing even a torturous death with a calmness about them. So why is Jesus' so so greatly troubled about the coming cross, especially when we know he's greater than any man that has ever walked the earth? When we know that he himself is God, the Son, in his divine uh, nature, and who he holds all power in his hands. We wonder why this Jesus should say, now is my soul trouble. Now, not to make light of the physical suffering to come, but it seems that the crucifixion in and of itself is not what troubled Jesus. Jesus himself encouraged his disciples in Matthew 10, where he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. What troubled Jesus' soul wasn't the the physical suffering to come, but it was the spiritual suffering to come the wrath of God, because unlike anyone in the history of mankind, Jesus fully knew the weight of that wrath because he's the only one that can carry it. And what I mean by that is it's like if we did an experiment and I blindfolded you and I put two weights in front of you, right? Maybe a two pound weight and a 20 pound weight. And I asked you to pick them up. You could judge and say which one is heavier because you're able to carry the weight. So you can be like, oh, the 20-pound weight is heavier than the two-pound weight. But if you were blindfolded and I told you to push a cylinder block, maybe one that was 3,000 pounds and another that is three tons, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because you can't carry that weight, right? So the only way, you see, the only way to fully, to truly know the weight of something is you must be able to carry it. The Bible tells us that sin comes at a cost, a cost that's unimaginable to us. A cost that we are unable to pay. A judgment that we are unable to bear. And Jesus is the only one that can truly carry the weight of God's wrath. Of his judgment for the sins of the world. So as Christ contemplated the judgment of God that he was to bear, his human soul trembled. Now this trembling of the soul shows Jesus' solidarity with man. We have a God who fully knows because he fully experienced what we go through. Not only did he experience it, but he also did it at a magnitude that is unfathomable to us. And if this troubled spirit shows solidarity with us, then his faithful resolve also sets an example for us. What was Jesus' response to the coming wrath? The text says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come. What's the purpose? Father, glorify your name. In this exchange, in this prayer between Jesus and the Father, uh, we have the privilege of of really seeing this interaction. Uh, Jesus and the Father were always in sync. Right? Jesus said that I and the Father are one. Uh, he told us, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus and the Father were always in constant communication. So when he prayed audibly, it was for our benefit and not for his own benefit. In fact, Jesus tells us that, and we'll see that a, a little bit later. And what, what we see during this prayer Uh, We see that Jesus gains the resolve not to shrink away from what was to come by finding strength in his knowledge of God's Father, the will of God's, the Father's will for him. Uh, This wasn't like some suck it up approach, like, you know, just tough it out and get through it. Um, It wasn't that type of moment. Jesus had made a practice of doing the will of the Father his entire life. So he in practice, the submission to God's will. it wasn't a, a thing of just willpower. Like, you know, I'm, let me just try harder just to get through this. But it was, uh, it was the, the summation of everything that he's been doing his, his entire life. And I think that sometimes in our lives, what things have we tried to rid ourselves of with willpower befell that, right? Uh, like ridding ourselves of pride or, or maybe dishonesty or, or lust or worry or, or fear. It's not when we get to these moments that we just muster up the strength to get through them, but it's a building a habit of submission to God in the small moments of life that will prepare us for the big moments in life. When we, we see in this prayer that Jesus, that the focus is more than just a mere reluctant acceptance of the Father's will, but a reluctancy that is overpowered by a greater by a desire, a greater desire to bring glory to God. It's, like, it's kind of like your boss. If your boss asks you to do something that's kind of hard at the end of the day that you really don't want to do, but, but you go ahead and do it anyway because you just know that she, she's your boss, so you got to get it done, all right? Uh, it's not like that. It's not like Jesus went to the cross and just was like, you know, I just have to get it done because the father sent me to do this job. That, that's not what it's like. But what it, what, it, what it is like, it's like your boss asking you to do a hard task at the end of the day. And you, you might not want to do it, but you do it anyway. You do it not to just appease your boss, but because you want your boss to look good to the rest of the company right? So when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just to appease the Father, but it was to bring glory to the Father. Like Jesus, we must also have an unwillingness to give up what is of most importance, which is glorifying God for what we may want now, right? We can't trade what we want now for the glory of God. We may want peace or or comfort or security, but we have to have an unwillingness to, to trade God's glory for those things. This is Jesus displaying what he said in verse 25, where he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying, not my life, but Father, your will. And as we continue, it's interesting to note that that John, he devotes the first 11 chapters of the book to the first three years of Jesus's life, and then we come to this point, and then the last 10 are devoted to the last week of jesus life right it's this kind of like he slows down and he kind of zooms in on this moment right here and he wants to really show us that this is the whole purpose of Jesus' life which is to glorify the father through the cross this cross is the apex of the life of jesus not the resurrection but the cross and, and as Nick kind of explained to us before, I mean, without the resurrection of the cross, without the resurrection, the cross would have been meaningless. But nonetheless, the cross is where God is glorified and peace is given to men on earth. If we look at, at Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through uh, 14, and it's, uh, it's, it's on the screen, but it says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with greater fear with great fear and the angel said to them fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord what a what a, what a birth announcement right But then we skip down to the 13th verse and it says and suddenly there was uh, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I see this really as a picture of the cross. Glory to God in the highest and peace to men on earth. So before Jesus even came, the angels in heaven were already declaring his purpose: Glory to God in the highest, and peace to men on earth. We may be tempted to think that Jesus found the strength to face the cross and his knowledge of God's will to redeem us from our sins. And and that that is doubtless true. Um, I kind of remember I was thinking that when I, I grew up going to church and I remember that I would hear pastors, you know, preach about Jesus being on the cross and and what kept him up there. And I, I, I can't pinpoint who said this, but I do remember once I would say that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked out through time and he saw your face. He saw my face. He saw all of our faces, and that's what kept him on the cross because of the love for us. And I I think that's a great, like a a good picture, but it's not quite true, right? It's not not quite true. Uh, And and it sounds great, uh, but Jesus told us that his motive is even greater than that. And his motive was, Father, glorify your name. That's what kept Jesus on the cross. Uh, a scholar by the name of a Johns Montgomery Boyce comments to glorify God is his chief end, and he will not shrink from following uh, whatever way the father chooses to have the son glorify him. So the highest motive, so God's greatest aim is to glorify God. His greatest aim is to glorify himself, and that's good for us, right? That is good for us. The highest motive in our salvation is always that God should be glorified in his power and grace. Jesus literally loved God's glory more than his own soul. And that is where he found the strength to overcome the infinite suffering of the cross. Father, glorify your name. During this prayer, we see that not only Jesus talking to the father, but then the father responds to Jesus. And God responds to Jesus' prayer and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is one of three instances in the gospel where we see the father respond to the son with an audible voice. The first being at Jesus' baptism, and and there we see that uh, when Jesus was baptized, the the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and we heard a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the second, during his uh, transfiguration, uh, when he was on the mountain, uh, we heard the voice of God. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him. This voice from heaven could only be distinguished at this time when uh, Jesus is talking to the crowd and uh, he hears the father say, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This voice uh, from heaven could only be distinguished by Jesus and what the father says solidifies that he has been glorifying himself throughout the life and ministry of Jesus and that he can be counted on to glorify it at the hour that is now here. The work of the son is a direct reflection of the father. And this glorification is not a specific instance or a specific act, but an ongoing glory that is being distributed between father and son. So our work as Christians, the fruit, is gives glory to Jesus, who is the seed, just as Jesus gives glory to the father. Now we get to see a little bit of the unbelief uh, in John, of the crowd uh, in John 29 verses uh, John 12 verses 29 through 34. it says, "The crowd stood there and heard it and heard it, and they had it uh, and they I'm sorry, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, "An angel has spoken to him." Jesus answered, "This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? God speaking, this voice was God's grace towards the people because as Jesus said, it was for their benefit because the crowd will eventually remember uh, what Jesus had told them the voice said. It would be for them a divine confirmation that the shameful cross and all that flowed from it was not a defeat, but a victory, not a final destruction, but an ultimate glorification." The cross comes with grave implications because as Jesus states, now is the judgment of this world. It is important to notice that this judgment is directly connected to the cross. The cross is both the glorification of Jesus and the judgment of the world. The cross is the point of decision for the world as either the place for your salvation in which the cross is the sacrifice of the lamb of of God on your behalf or, or the place of your judgment by which you stand already condemned. How does the cross of Christ judge the world? By showing how evil the world is. Why else would God's perfect son who came and lived the perfect life of truth and love and healing and teaching the people be put to death? because of the evilness of mankind. So Christ on the cross exposed the hearts of men and Jesus anticipated this by saying, now is the judgment of this world. The cross didn't only judge the world, but it also overthrew the ruler of this world, the devil. Oh, the the irony, right? So I was looking, I was thinking about ironic moments and I looked up a few uh, points of irony within the uh, the history of, of mankind. And uh, just a couple. Uh, one, it says uh, in the 1920s, I don't know if you guys knew this, but in the 1920s, the New York Times often illustrated, insulted, I'm sorry, crossword puzzles, claiming people would get bored of them. And in 1925, after having made a derogatory statement the previous year, uh, the New York Times declared the craze evidently is dying out fast. But today, the New York Times Sunday edition has one of the most well regarded crossword puzzles in the world. Did you know that gunpowder was accidentally created by uh, Chinese alchemists in the ninth century who were actually attempting to find an elixir of mortality, of immortality, sorry, of immortality. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, let's see. Oh, and then the introduction of, of cane toads to Australia uh, was intended to prevent the overpopulation of these cane beetles. So they had a cane beetle problem, and they thought we'll introduce a cane toad problem to eat all the beetles and, 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 and kill our problem and stop it. But instead, not only did it not prevent the overpopulation, it resulted in the cane toads being an even worse pest and a more danger, uh, more danger to the native animals and plants. But the greatest irony of all time was the fact that the cross was Satan's greatest triumph. The Messiah, the savior of the world, had been put to death by the will of his own people. But the greatest reversal ever, Jesus instead overthrew Satan's reign. Satan is the accuser of men. He's been a liar since the beginning. Guilt and lies. But the cross, the death of Jesus, removes our sin by paying the debt of our guilt. And Jesus sends the believers, us His Holy Spirit, uh, to deliver us from Satan's power. So, who the Son sets free is free indeed. So the cross secured the judgment of the world and rejected uh, of the. Uh, I'm sorry. So the cross secured the judgment of the world that rejected Jesus and overthrew his enemy, the devil. And finally, the crowd responds: We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? There's a lot of unbelief there um, and a lot of misguided expectations. They're, they're expecting Christ to come and set up an earthly ministry, to, to stay as king forever, but Christ came to give them so much more. And you know, we today still have those same struggles with the unbelief and same struggles with the, the mis-expectations, right? We expect Christ to do something for us or to do, I don't know, to deliver us in in a a certain way, maybe some some physical way, but Christ has come to do so much more. We put more trust in our own ability than we do in God's power. We're just like the crowd in so so many ways. Certainly, one day this will be the case in the future when Christ returns for a second coming. But as his first coming is to be a sacrifice for sin. It seems they're forgetting what the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53 and 5, where he says, but, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Jesus has come to do more than simply save them from Rome. He has come to save them from sin. He's, the problem is they don't believe that they needed a savior. The problem is that we don't believe we need a savior. You see, the Jewish people at that time believed they were saved because of their lineage. You know, they, they, they thought that because they were the seed of Abraham, they were good with God. But Jesus warned them against this thinking in John 8. He says to the Jews or in John 8, the Jews had said, Abraham is our father. Right. But Jesus told them, you, of, you are of your father, the devil. And, and Nick did a great job of uh, preaching on that. And we can you can go back and, and watch that one as well. But, but like them, we don't think we need a savior. We think we need to make better lifestyle choices. Eat healthy, work out, drink more water, get eight hours of sleep, or, or maybe some of us think we just need to work harder and smarter and then manage our money a little bit better. Uh, we just need to read more books or, or listen to more podcasts or, or become uh, more productive. We just need a little advice, but we don't need a savior. Our life isn't that bad, right? But I'm here to tell you that we need more than just some good advice. We need the good news. That Jesus Christ was lifted up to draw all men to himself by doing what no one else could have done in obtaining for us uh, what we didn't deserve, all for the glory of God. And I urge you to look at the cross and see the glory of God and the beauty of Christ, our Savior. So Jesus, he said to them, as in, as in their unbelief, and, and Jesus kind of, and he responds, and, and what I kind of saw here in this moment is, is Jesus responding to the people in a gracious way, and so let me, let me read it. John 35, or John 12 and 35, it says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed, and hid himself from uh, and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that he had, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, we usually pay attention when someone is giving their last words. So we should definitely pay attention here. The last words of Jesus uh, weren't words of of. of 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 just judgment and uh, you guys don't get me, but they were words of grace. The last time he addressed the crowd before uh, this is the last time he addressed the crowd before going to the cross. In his word, we see a uh, we hear a calling of some sorts, right? To walk in the light while he is still here. At the end, we find the graciousness of God. God is gracious and patient, gracious and patient with his people. There's a story in Genesis that comes to mind when I I think about this, and it's a a story of of patience and judgment. And it can be found in Genesis 5, and many who are familiar with it know of it as as the story of Noah's Ark, right? Uh, The Bible says in Genesis 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, so Noah built the ark and he, he was preaching to the people of God's coming wrath. And, and the people continued to reject Noah. Oh, you know, we don't believe you. What are you talking about? all these types of things, but in his graciousness, God was preparing, was telling the people and calling them to, 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 to turn from their evilness and to turn to Christ. But there came a time when the rain started to fall, and the Bible tells us that God himself closed the door, right? God sealed the ark, and Noah and the people that were in it were saved. I believe what this shows is that even though God's judgment is coming, he is still patient, right? Even through this ministry with Jesus, Jesus didn't just come and, and spend a little bit of time. He had three years of ministry, preaching to this group of people, telling them to turn from their ways, to turn to Christ, to, to see the evilness in their heart. That was God's patience with the people. But just like at that time, Jesus was telling them that, you know, walk in the light now. What he's saying is walk in the light now because I'm only here for a little bit longer. God's patience. Let's not think that because God is patient, he's going to just not be just, right? I think that God's patience, even though God is patient, he is also just. And just at the time of Noah, where it came to the point where God sealed up and it was, it was too late, Jesus is letting them know that it's going to come to a point where, where it's, it's too late for them as well. You see, Jesus said, the light is among you a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness does not overtake you. The one who walks in the light, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Jesus spoke these things, and he departed and was concealed from them. The opening verses of John's gospel introduce us to Jesus Christ as the incarnation of God. John wants his readers to know that Jesus is fully God in human form. John then reveals the purpose of God coming to earth as a human. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John 1, 4 through 5. And Jesus Christ came to bring the light of God's life into a spiritually dark and dying world. Light is an ancient symbol for God. And by applying it to himself, Jesus did two things. He declared his deity, that he is God, and he also was teaching that he was the one who makes God known. Uh, John three sixteen, 16, uh, John three sixteen, the most famous uh, verse in the whole world, uh, gives us a clear snapshot of the gospel. And I'll read John 3, uh, 16 through 21 to, to just to, to make a, a point. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light. Least his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. One of the most curious and troubling things of man is that it seems that we always want what we cannot have or we always want to do what we should not do. Eve wanted forbidden fruit. Cain wanted acceptance without obedience. David wanted someone else's wife. Judas wanted easy money. The lure of taking what is forbidden is is alluring, but it gives us a false sense of pleasure. Doing what you want is is also the easy way in life, a life void of effort and self-discipline. It is not an enlightened existence. All throughout the bible light associated with truth and goodness god's character is often associated with light David saying the lord is my light and my salvation and the psalmist also wrote thy word is a lamp unto my feet to live according to the teaching of god's word is to walk in the light darkness however is associated with evil and error those who are alienated from god have their understanding darkened and, 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 and are ignorant and have a blindness of heart. The dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. The reason for the world's love affair with darkness is that it hides sin, or, or so it's believed. Uh, as long as it is dark, as long as there is no light uh, of truth, those in sin can perpetuate their evil. But let one beam of truth, pierce the darkness of sin and error and let one ray of goodness break through and those darknesses uh, break through and those in darkness scatter like bugs exposed to daylight. But the feeling of had and hitting sin is only an illusion for all things are open and naked before God. One of the reasons, if, if not the main reason, those in the world often feel uncomfortable around faithful Christians is that the faithful child of God reminds sinners of their sin. Have you ever found yourself in the presence of someone? They just like bothered you and like they just like irritated you. And then you kind of thought like, oh, I know why, because they, they exposed something in my heart. You know, it's not often it's not about them. It's about us. Right. Like when I get frustrated with my kids, it's because I'm impatient. It had nothing to do with them. A lot of times it's a reflection and exposing of my own heart. Jesus is telling the people to walk with him, to walk in the light. As the express image and brightness of God's glory, the Lord is the light of the world. We also know that the whole world is full of wickedness. The world hates the light of life because he reproves their evil deeds. And and Jesus is also, he's hated without cause. Since the Lord has come and lived and taught the world, now has uh, no cloak for its sin, right? Jesus has came, he exposed the the evilness of man, so they they have no, no covering, no cloak, no way to hide their sin. And because the world hates him, it also hates us as we emulate his life and follow his teaching. Jesus said this condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So where do we stand? Do we stand in the shadows? Are we deep in the darkness of sin and error? Or do we run toward and bathe our souls in the light of God and his word? If we have been found to walk in the light in this life, in heaven, there will be no night. For the glory of God will lighten it, and the Lamb will be the light thereof. So Jesus' final plea was straightforward, but still we refused to believe it. Though Christ had done many miracles, from healing the blind to raising the dead, there was still unbelief among the people. From this, John quotes the Old Testament prophet in Isaiah uh, isaiah 6 and he, he quotes two verses verses 9 and 10 but but before he gets to that point what it is is isaiah had a vision right isaiah was before god he saw god in his his glory and uh, he was before the throne and and it was thunder and and lightning and and, and I can just imagine how he would feel in the presence of God, right? And he was here, the angels flying around, and they were just, they were singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, right? Holy, that God is unlike any other. And as he's there and he talks about the, he sees the, the train of the, the robe of, of, of Christ, he says it filled the temple. And what that was really saying is that all glory belonged to Christ, right? There was no room for any other glory because it was only God's glory. And he was there and he's witnessing this and he's there in the presence and he, he, he's describing what's going on. And then he gets to this point at uh, verses nine and 10 and he says, and he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes Least they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed." The Bible, it makes reference to God hardening the hearts of men. Now, now these people would not believe despite the evidence. Have you ever, I remember as a kid, right? As a kid, I used to think I'd read, read the Bible and, and hear all these miracles of what Jesus did. And I would think to myself, how would you not believe? I would think to myself, like, if I saw that, like, there's no way I would not believe. But we see that these people in this time, that's exactly what was happening. They were witnessing the miracles of Christ. They watched him feed the 5,000. They watched him give the, the blind man sight. They watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. But still, they wouldn't believe. See, these people would not believe despite the evidence. And as a result, God hardened their hearts. During the time of Pharaoh, when the people of Israel were in Egypt, God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And we see uh, in in Exodus, it it talks about this, and it says, uh, God said, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous sign and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites. And then if you read a little further in chapter 8, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a relief, he hardened his heart. So first it said God hardened his heart, and then it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which was it? Well, it was both. God and Pharaoh's doing. Much like Pharaoh, when we experience lawlessness and reject the goodness of God as judgment, God may blind us to his truth, much like we see here. So it, it was a, a, a passiveness, a passive uh, rejection of God that hardened his heart, but then also God actively did it. Uh, the way I kind of see it, it's like, uh, how would I say, uh, Working out, right? Using a muscle. The more you use a muscle, the stronger it gets. But if you stop, it doesn't stay at that level of strength, right? You start to, to lose the strength. And as we reject God, the judgment of me not working out is my Strength is lowered. Right. As I reject God, the judgment is that I go further into darkness. You know, God is offering us the light. He's saying come to the light. But as I reject him, my heart gets colder and colder. So the judgment of God is also the hardening of of, of our hearts. And this is the warning for us today to walk in the light right? Because it is only here for a little while because to turn down truth today may actually be an eternal rejection simply because that truth may not come our way again, right? To reject God today could be an eternal rejection because it may not come our way again. That's uh, very, very sobering because since, since God has not changed over the years, do not think we can just wait to commit to Jesus. Uh, you know, those people that say, you know, I- I'll wait. Let me party a little bit more or, or do my own thing, then I'll come to Jesus when I'm ready. That is such a dangerous place uh, to be. So we, we don't want to remain in darkness because you may be plunged into greater darkness. You know, walk, walk in the light. But we get to the point where we start to see the stubbornness of man. At the end of this passage, it talks about how they responded. Right? And in verse 42, John 12 and 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Before fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than they love, more than the glory that comes from God. Like the people listening to Jesus' words 20 centuries ago, we hear them and are called to respond. We see that many believed, but they were left with a choice. A choice to follow Christ or return to the status quo. Jesus is calling us today, calling us away from our stubbornness, away from the things we value more than Christ. It's the same call that they heard, and we're still fighting with the same tensions, right? We we were fighting with these tensions of trading things that we see are valuable, trading Jesus for things that we see that are more valuable, right? Uh, We we remember when when, when Mary poured out the perfume and, and Jesus told Judas, to leave her alone, right? Because Judas was upset that she poured out such expensive perfume for Jesus. But what what Mary was showing was that she saw Christ's worth as infinite. His worth, his value was worth more than anything that she had in her possession, right? But then we fast forward and we'll get there a uh, a little bit later, but we'll see what Judas thought was more valuable. He traded the savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver. He thought 30 pieces of silver was more valuable than Christ, right? And, and we make those trades too sometimes, right? Sometimes we think that my family here on earth is more valuable than Christ. So I'll trade Christ to make sure my family and my legacy is good, right? Or we may say that you know, my, my career is more valuable than Christ. So I'll, I'll focus my energy and my time and devote myself to that and trade that for Christ or it could be a number of things. My health is more valuable than Christ, right? I have more control over the things that I want than than my control is more valuable than Christ. Whatever it is, we can just insert it there. But nothing in the world is more valuable than Christ, right? So those same challenges, those same tensions that they're facing, we still face those today. Is anything more valuable than Christ? No, no, it's not. Social pressure, that's what the Pharisees uh, are, were holding on to. And we do it today just as much as they did, or maybe even more. Society is trying to pull us away from the savior so that we can increase our social standing and have more clout or, or more social currency. We're being called to stand for everything but the truth. And I know it's hard to, to, fit, in, uh, to fit in with culture, uh, but that's because we aren't called to fit in. We're called to stand out, right, to, to be a light. Uh, as Jesus says, walk in the light that you may become, become lights. When, when we walk in the light, we also become like these little lights, right? These little lights that point people to Christ, our Savior. You know, society now today, uh, it, it, everybody wants you to make a stand, right? Like, who are you with? Right, it's just kind of like you have to wave your flag in everything. It's kind of annoying, right? That that politics have entered every sports. Who's your team? Oh, it's because you believe this. Wait, what does that have to do with anything, right? Or or what do you think about? I don't know. Elon Musk buying Twitter. Why is that a political thing, right? All, everything that we do in life. Do you are you vegan? Do you eat meat? What is it like? That we're called to make a, a stand, and, and the pressure is that okay. I like meat, but maybe everybody I work with is kind of vegan, so yeah, I'm vegan too, a little bit, right? Our, our call, <laughs> our, our 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 pool, or the pool, is for us to just join in and just kind of to assimilate. But God doesn't call us to assimilate. That comes at a cost, right? That comes at a cost. There will be a time where we have to make a stand, and we have to say what is right, no matter what popular culture says right no matter what popular culture is telling us to to think like this and to consider these things no 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 it's not it's we have to stand on the word of god and what he has called us called us to do in 1960 in the 1960s martin luther king jr he wrote there was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early christians rejoiced and at being deemed worthy to suffer what they believed in. Like that's just crazy to think about, like the church rejoicing that I'm worthy to suffer for my beliefs, when it seems like it's so opposite today, right? Like we don't, a lot of times, a lot of people don't rejoice that they are worthy to suffer. If anything, we want to avoid suffering, right? We set up our whole lives to avoid suffering. That is all, that seems like the goal, avoid suffering, go to comfort. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the morals of society. That sounds like it could have been written yesterday, right? That the same challenges that, that they faced and the things that were going on then is the same thing that goes on now within the church, right? We, we're, in, instead of setting the tone instead of setting the direction of culture, oftentimes we just kind of record it. What does culture believe? We kind of believe that too, but we probably believe it a little different, right? I don't want to offend anybody, right? And we just become a a group of people that just becomes a reflection of outside culture that just gathers on Sunday, right? But God has called us to so much more. He he called us to to set the, the trends for culture, right? To be little lights, to show people the way to Christ. That shows that the call of Christ to the crowds in Jerusalem is the same call of Christ that is being made today. Christ not only called us, but he has given us the power to respond. So, the question is, what is your aim? Is it to gain the glory of man? I want to say that when your hour has come, let it be an hour where God is glorified. Let men look upon you at your funeral and, and, and they say, God is good, right? When, when, when we lived our life and, and people come up and have words, what, what do you want them to say? Do you want them to say you've built a great career? You have a great legacy? No, no, I want them to say God is good, right? As a evidence, as evidence of my life lived and it was poured out. And at that time, when we see Christ face to face, I want to hear, and I'm sure you want to hear too, well done, right? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. That's what we should all want the Lord to say. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this moment that you have given us to go into your word. I thank you for revealing to us your ultimate aim, which is to glorify you, and I thank you that you were faithful and committed to glorifying yourself, so much so that you were willing to pay the ultimate cost in giving your son, Jesus, to die on the cross. That was the greatest good that could ever be done. Lord, as we think about our lives, I ask you that let you send the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to face our own hour when it comes and to have a resolve to to not shrink back, just like Jesus did not shrink back, but to have a resolve, God, to, to walk into that hour and to glorify your name. Let your name be glorified through everything that we do. Father, you have given us so much more than we ever deserve, so much more than we could ever ask for. You have remained faithful. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for helping us, for not leaving us alone. Thank you for being good. Lord, we often turn away from the light. We are tempted to follow things that we think will give us more satisfaction than you. But God, I ask you to to strengthen our hearts, God to always keep them turned back to you, Father, in any moments that we feel that, that we are looking away. I ask that you just turn our hearts back to you. I ask that you help us, Father God, as we glorify you. Lord, let that be our aim. In Jesus' name, amen.